Welcome to the October 15th, 2018 edition of the BitcoinNews.com daily podcast where we cover the biggest stories of Bitcoin, blockchain, and cryptocurrency every single day. This is your host Space Marine, live from space. Jumping right into the market analysis. Bitcoin sitting near 67.25 on Bitfinex, but on Bitstamp it's at 6435. So there's definitely a discrepancy going on. Bitfinex is usually the rate I use on like 70 of my past shows. But in the past week or so, they've their banking troubles, like they lost their bank account, it appears. They say they're restoring it today, though. But a day ago, the discrepancy between Bitfinex and Bitstamp and Coinbase grew to $1,000, which is like 15%. It decreased by the time I did the show yesterday, and now today, it's decreased even further. It's only like a 5% difference, which is still a lot between major exchanges. It shows that the situation might be improving, but there's still not like arbitrage mechanisms in place. Because usually arbitrage allows traders to like even out the price differences across global exchanges. But obviously arbitrage isn't working due to the lack of fiat functionality on Bitfinex. And I'll continue updating about this on the shows. And Tether was another important part of this because Bitfinex is intimately tied with Tether. And so Tether actually went up, like it, it went as low as 92.5 cents. It's supposed to be at $1 and now it's at 98 cents. So it's going back towards a dollar, which is good, but it's still two cents below a dollar, which is really not good for a stablecoin. It should always be at one dollar. It's marketed as always going to be at one dollar. And another thing that's been going on with Tether is there's been a lot of basically redemption going on. So it appears redemption's working, which is good news, because basically the Tether supply went up to 2.8 billion Tether, which is 2.8 billion dollars when it's a dollar per Tether, but it hasn't been. And then it dropped and dropped and dropped. It was at two point like four billion. So four hundred million dollars of tether was like redeemed or three hundred and twenty million. Because some of the drop was from basically the price of tether going down too. So I think about three hundred twenty million dollars of tether was rede- redeemed, which and that might have caused a run on tether's bank, which might have caused it to freeze up, which caused tether's price to go down to ninety two and a half cents. But tether's rising back towards ninety eight cents. But then once again today, there was a pretty huge. $200 million, maybe $250 million, I think it's $250, $250 million of Tether was redeemed, like, in the past day, too. So, overall, $600 million of Tether has been taken out of circulation and redeemed, and how Tether should work is there's a bank account with dollars for each USDT, which is Tether, and then people can redeem it through Tether Limited, it appears that's happening. $600 million of Tether redeemed, so Tether is losing some of its dominance as the number one stablecoin. Like over 90% of stablecoin transactions were with Tether, but there's other stablecoins. Like there's a few other ones, like ones from Gemini, which is a pretty legit exchange in the United States. And it appears these other stablecoins now have their chance to like rise to prominence now that Tether's really lost a lot of reputation. Even falling to 92.5 cents for one day and being at 98 cents still after some time, that's enough to ruin its reputation for a lot of people because a lot of people lose money that way. They're supposed to count on that being a dollar and then it declines that's not that's not how it should work so and actually on the exchanges the other stable coins have been above a dollar because you're moving from tether to the other stable coins as fast as they can so we'll keep updating on that now for our first story of the day whales stabilize the bitcoin market so there's a lot of speculation whenever a big wallet starts moving a big bitcoin wallet is called a whale and there was a time in August 2018 when a trader with $2 billion of Bitcoin was blamed for causing a 15% price decline because he sold 50,000 Bitcoins worth $300 million in one month. 
and that they blamed him for the breast plan. It's probably not true. But anyways, whale watching causes speculation that could actually impact the market. So, like, if, let's say Satoshi Nakamoto with his, like, a million Bitcoins. He actually mined, like, a million Bitcoins in the early days of Bitcoin. Let's say there was even one Bitcoin withdrawn from that wallet. That would indicate Satoshi is active and thinking about selling or something. That's what people would think. And that could cause the market to decline all on its own. Even though, even Satoshi, Satoshi has, like, if, let's say it's a million Bitcoins. That's, like, seven, six or seven billion dollars. The daily trading volume of Bitcoin is like five or ten billion dollars, probably more like ten billion when you include the OTC markets and the spot markets together and the peer-to-peer trading is probably like ten billion dollars of Bitcoin being traded per day. So even Satoshi's entire Bitcoin stash is less than the daily trading volume of Bitcoin. So theoretically it shouldn't affect Bitcoin's price too much. But whale watchers would tend to like stump their coins because they get scared when a whale starts moving around in the ocean of Bitcoin. So there was a study done by Chainalysis, and Chainalysis comes with some pretty good deep dive studies into Bitcoin stats, and they found that whales actually stabilized the Bitcoin market. So, basically, when the market's going down, it was found that the whales tend to buy Bitcoins. Like, there's these whale wallets, and they tend to accumulate Bitcoin as Bitcoin's price goes down, which makes sense, because they're major Bitcoin holders, and they're usually long-term Bitcoin holders, too, and they know when the price goes down, that's an opportunity to buy, so they usually buy it, and that stabilizes the market. So as opposed to whales dumping when everyone else dumps and making the price go lower than ever, they usually buy when everyone else is dumping because they're the strong hands. That's how they became whales. So that's what this study found. And then there's also, they found four types of whales. They found that there's trader whales, there's investor whales, there's lost whales, and then there's criminal whales. And the criminal whales and the lost whales don't really have much of an effect on the market. And the trader whales and the investor whales are the ones that tend to stabilize Bitcoin. Now for our next story. In Syria, Syria's had a horrible civil war. As we all know, maybe, unless you're hiding under a rock, Syria has had, like, the biggest war of our, like, times. Like, no one knows how many people are killed. It might be, like, over a million, unfortunately. And there's been huge fighting between, like, Iran, the United States, Syria, even Turkey... Russia, yeah, the U.S. and Russia are kind of having a proxy war over there. And so one part of Syria called Rojava, Rojava, R-O-J-A-V-A, it's kind of like Java code, but it's Rojava. So they're an autonomous region in Syria. They're basically an independent country that broke off in 2012 during the early stages of the Syrian civil war. So they're technically still part of Syria according to like the maps and stuff, but they're really their own country. And they're actually part of Kurdistan. So Kurdistan, like the Kurdish people, live throughout Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and some of Iran. Maybe up in the Caucasus a little bit. Around like Georgia and stuff up there in the Caucasus. And the far south of Russia, south of the far south of Russia. So the, Kurdis, the Kurds are looked down upon and there's a lot of racism towards them from the surrounding Sunni and Shiites. So even though they're the same religion, I believe, they're looked down upon and they're treated less. And so... Rojava is basically part of Kurdistan. There's lots of Kurds there. And so the countries around them, every single one of their neighbors, Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran, have put bad economic sanctions on Rojava. Because they are their own country, but there's huge sanctions on them. So when they try to send money, it costs them at least 10% to launder the money out of their country to buy things. And that's not good for a country. So like the other countries are trying to like put down Rojava. So now Rojava is looking into adopting blockchain and cryptocurrency, and they're specifically, like other countries like Venezuela try to make their own state-backed cryptocurrency, and we'll go into that. They might consider that, but it seems like they just want to use Bitcoin. So they have these uh, currency 
places that like process the fiat currency. And by the way, the Syrian fiat currency, the Syrian pound, and it's also called the Syrian lira, I believe. So the Syrian pound has went from 47 Syrian pounds per dollar when the war broke out in 2011 to 515 Syrian pounds per dollar as of like this month. And it's always getting worse like month to month because the war continues. So they've had such tremendous inflation that there's actually like Rojava is spending lots of money on just processing the huge amounts of cash that they need for running their country. There's like they're spending lots of money on just processing the cash and sending it around. It's heavy. And there's lots of it, lots of counting to do. And also, besides that, they don't want to use the Syrian pound. They had a huge war with Syria that cost them at least 10,000 lives, as it says on Wikipedia. Probably more than that. And it probably continues. A little bit, at least, on the border. So, they they don't like Syria, but they're using Syria's fiat currency anyways, because they were in Syria before. They don't want to use Syria's fiat currency anymore. They're That's their enemy. So, they're going to probably use Bitcoin Uh a Bitcoin developer who was involved in the Syrian civil war, Amir Taki, suggests that the local currency exchanges actually be supplied with Bitcoin and the residents of Rojava be supplied with mobile phones and wallet software. So then they can start using Bitcoin as their local native currency. They're also, they kind of operate on a co-op, like communist style. I don't want to use the word communist because it's like such a bad connotation, but they... They work in communes, basically, and there's, like, one for farming, agriculture, media, and so they all work together, and they're considering making their own cryptocurrencies for each commune so they could trade with each other, and that would make a lot of sense. So they're considering some state-backed cryptocurrencies, too, and aside from that, they're considering using blockchain technology to create a transparent and secure democratic system because they're having serious problems there because their neighbors are all trying to, like, compromise their country, so they're going to use a cryptographically secure and transparent blockchain to make sure that no one from the surrounding countries that hate them can compromise their democratic system. And they could also use that for trading and supply chains and stuff too. So Rojava, this new country that formed in 2012 in part of Syria, is considering using Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and blockchain. And that's big news for over there. Now for our next story. The Great Firewall of China. So we all know about the Great Wall of China. You can see it from space. I can see right now I'm in space and Earth orbit, so I can see the Great Wall of China, but the Great Firewall of China exists too. It's on the internet. So they put a big firewall around all of China's internet users, and it actually affects Bitcoin in the sense that it takes some time for packets to travel across the firewall because they inspect all the packets, and they actually don't block any packets going out from the firewall, but they block ones going in. So they observe all of them and they filter stuff coming in and they might even be able to filter it going out too actually why not so but it said they weren't able to or they at least don't do that but there's latency caused by this and this is an issue because actually in the past before the bitcoin uh to fiat ban in china like over 90 percent of bitcoin to fiat trading was in china and still that legacy continues 74% of all Bitcoin mining hash power is in China, this country that banned Bitcoin to fiat trading, which is surprising. Somehow they're probably cashing that out, but we're not going to talk about that today. So, and they've actually been growing. The hash rate has steadily increased from 50% in 2015 to 74% currently, even during the time the ban has happened. There was a slight decrease, actually a pretty significant decrease when the ban first happened, but it's increased back above those levels and continues to increase. So most of Bitcoin's hash rate is in China, yet it's behind the Great Firewall of China. So if someone, so if a Bitcoin miner is sending 
information from a node behind the firewall, between two nodes behind the Great Firewall of China, inside of China, there's no latency, but they're sending information out to the rest of the network, which is all across the rest of the world. There's latency going across the firewall. And that actually puts the miners in China at a disadvantage. So they could report a block and broadcast a block, but then there's actually some time delay due to the Great Firewall. And here's some stats about it. So there's 0.2% packet loss on average on the global internet, but across the firewall there's 6.9% packet loss from the latency, actually. not. I don't think that includes like them censoring things. This is latency and going through another layer that causes some packets to be lost. And so that increases the latency from 81 milliseconds to 218 milliseconds. So it takes on average 3.9 seconds for a block from a miter to propagate on the same side of the firewall. So blocks take 3.9 seconds in the rest of the world to propagate um, between, like, from the miners. And also inside of China, it takes 3.9 seconds. But if it goes across the firewall from China to the outside world, that's 17.4 seconds. So there's, like, there's, like, 13.5 seconds discrepancy here. And during that 13.5 seconds, someone outside of the firewall in, like, Europe or America or something could find a block. So if a miner in China finds a block... They're, they're taking a 13.5 second lag, and then someone else could find a block during that 13.5 seconds, and they'll get the block reward instead of the person in China that actually found it earlier. And by the way, this is a 450% slowdown in block propagation. So in the past, Chinese miners had an incentive to do empty block mining with SPV mining, and that increased empty blocks from the global average of 1-2% to as high as 7% for Chinese miners, but then they changed Bitcoin's code with BIP-152 Bitcoin Improvement Proposal in 2016. And it made it so empty blocks propagate at nearly the same speed as not empty blocks, and then China's empty blocks returned to 1%. So that's been fixed, but they still have that lag. The lag has not gone away, and they're still at this disadvantage. And in reality, since 74% of the hash rate is in China... This actually slows down confirmations. It slows down blocks for the entire Bitcoin network, actually. It slows down the speed at which the mining system works. Still, block times are averaging less than 10 minutes because the hash rate's been increasing so much. So that that's more of a factor than the blocks slowing down to the firewall, but that's important to know about. The Great Firewall of China is slowing down the Bitcoin network. Now for our final story of the day. There's this hacker, or whatever you want to call him, under the pseudonym Geocold. Interesting name. I think my pseudonym's better, Space Marine. But he's Geocold. And he live-streamed a 51% attack on Alcoin. He was saying originally he was going to attack Einsteinium. But he gave a week's warning. And so in that week, the Einsteinium community increased their mining hash rate by 15-fold. 15 times. So that made Einsteinium very hard to attack. And he didn't attack Einsteinium because that would have been too costly. So then he attacked Bitcoin Private. So Einsteinium had like a market cap around $20 million, but Bitcoin Private has a market cap around like $51 million. So he attacked a bigger cryptocurrency, and it looks like it was quite successful. And the, the horrible thing about this is he did it with rented hash power. He doesn't even have his own rigs. He just went on one of those cloud hashing sites where you can rent some hash power, and he bought a couple hundred dollars worth of hash power, and he actually gained 70%. Actually, I think it was like 63% of Bitcoin Private's network hash rate. So he was the biggest miner by far. He was dominant, and he was mining more blocks than anyone, and that gave him the ability, if he had the time to, to fork Bitcoin Private, and he was going to fork it. And he was doing it on a live stream. So first what happened was he was on Twitch, which is like the most popular live streaming site I've heard of. 
So he was on Twitch and everyone was following him. Even Dogecoin's founder, Jackson Palmer, was like getting excited about watching it. But then someone blocked his mining pool. So he was mining on a Bitcoin private pool and they, they pretty much like hacked him and they took him off the pool. Like other hackers did. The pool didn't do it, but other hackers attacked his IP address and they knocked him off the pool. And then by the time he got back online, Twitch banned him. So Twitch banned him. And then he got back online and he was mining more blocks. By the way, when he was on Twitch, he only mined one block and then he was kicked off. But then he got onto another site called Stream.me and he was mining lots of blocks and he was about to fork the chain, but then they banned him. So two live streaming sites banned Geocold. And then he realized in the future he's going to do this again. He says he was going to fork Bitcoin Private. He was just about to do it when they banned him. So that's good news for Bitcoin Private. That would have like ruined Bitcoin Private. If it, it's pretty weak already, but it's worth $51 million, and it probably would have crashed if it got forked. That would have kind of ruined it. He said he wasn't going to do any double spends, but he was going to fork it. I'm not sure how you fork without a double spend. I guess he could change the code or something. He probably was going to do a slight double spend. Because if you, even if you do a slight double spend of like $1, that shows him he's not trying to steal money, but it, it would fork the whole chain and mess it up. So... He's going to do it again, he says, but just, like, have a video on YouTube after he does it. So he's going to do it anonymously this time. It's not really anonymous, but he's going to do it without telling anyone, and no one's going to know he's doing it, and then he's going to do it and take a whole video of him forking it, him doing a little double spend, like, for a dollar or something, and then forking the chain and ruining that cryptocurrency. And that's going to come, I guess, eventually, if he doesn't get hacked into oblivion before that happens. Because now that he's done this and he's really public... That's taken a lot of pressure. There's a lot of hacker people in the crypto world that would not want to put a spotlight like he did on himself because they know his IP address. That's not good. So I hope the best for him. and I hope he doesn't do that either. It's not good to be attacking cryptocurrencies, but his experiment proves something very important. Basically, with like a few hundred dollars or less, even like there's some cryptocurrencies. There was a past study I wrote about on Bitcoin News. Like some cryptocurrencies, you need only $10 of hashing power rented from a cloud mining service to like fork them and ruin them. Because they're so small, they're pretty much nothing anyways. But then there's some major ones, some ones that have use and some value, where it takes like a couple hundred dollars to hack it. And there's some pretty big ones that take like a thousand dollars to hack it, like to do a 51% attack. And by the way, I just want to explain a 51% attack. Basically, if a miner gets more than 50% of the hash power, they can create the longest chain and then fork the chain and they'll become the dominant chain and they can change the code or double spend. Double spending is when they send a transaction on the original chain. And then they make a new chain where that transaction doesn't exist. So they'll get the money for that transaction and then make a race and they'll get their money back too. So they get double the money. Or, well, I guess they get the money. Yeah, they steal it. So this just shows what he did, even though I hope he doesn't like continue attacking things. And I hope he doesn't get attacked either. I hope it just kind of ends there. But it's showing how weak alternative cryptocurrencies are. So here's the main point to take home. Bitcoin and Ethereum and some other major cryptocurrencies are safe. Like Litecoin's safe too. But if you start going into smaller coins, even if they look interesting, if they have weak network hash rate, like all the ERC-20 tokens are safe, by the way, because they're on Ethereum. But if there's a cryptocurrency that has its own proof-of-work mechanism and chain going on, and it has not enough mining power, it could be easily hacked. So investors and traders and any other crypto user has to really do the research and not start using any of these really weak mining power coins, or they could get hacked. That's all I have for you today. On this October 15th, 2018 edition of the BitcoinNews.com Daily Podcast. Come back tomorrow for another exciting episode. Go to BitcoinNews.com 24-7 for the full spectrum of Bitcoin, blockchain, and crypto analysis. This is your host, Space Marine, signing out. Going back to Neptune orbit.